Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi there, I'm Jason Schulman, and this is New Books in Australian and New Zealand Studies. We're the newest podcast in the New Books Network, a collection of scholarly podcasts. We plan to bring you interviews with authors about their latest works about Australia and New Zealand. Whether you're here in the United States where the show is produced, or in Australia, or across Europe, Asia, or anywhere else, we hope you enjoy the scholarship being produced about this fascinating region of the world. Uh, You can check us out online at newbooksnetwork.com. Download the podcast on iTunes, check us out on Twitter at NewBooksAUSNZ, or send us an email, NewBooksAUSNZ at gmail.com. Hope you enjoy the show. You'll listen, download, tell your friends, and come back each week. Thanks. Hi there, I'm Jason Shulman, and this is New Books in Australian and New Zealand Studies. My guest today is the historian Rebe Taylor who is the Coral Thomas Fellow at the State Library of New South Wales. Here to talk about her new book, Into the Heart of Tasmania, A Search for Human Antiquity, published in January 2017 by Melbourne University Press. Reby, welcome to the show. Thanks, Jason. Well, it's great to have you on. So, so Reby, tell us, who is Ernest Westlake? Uh, Who was he? What, What motivated him? Well, Ernest Westlake was an Englishman. He was born in 1855 in Hampshire, near the New Forest in England, And he was born to a very conservative Quaker family. And he grew up to eschew a lot of that. He became very interested in evolution and evolutionary theories. And he went to University College London as a young man and studied geology as well as maths and other science, scientific subjects, and became interested also in in biology. And he went home and he never became an academic in a university, but he spent his life dedicated to understanding human antiquity. And he began by collecting um, stone artifacts and studying the geology of his own area in Hampshire, started going further afield into France and then Ireland. And... um, As he got older, he started to become interested in some other areas, um, perhaps less scientific, but he approached them scientifically. That is, he became interested in psychical phenomenon, the uh, idea of ghosts perhaps being um, real and being possible to record. And he was in some ways quite eccentric, um, quite a loner. He married late uh, and... um, lost his uh, wife, unfortunately, about 10 years into their marriage and was then a widower with two young children. But And in that same year, lost all his money. He was, uh, you know, he had inherited quite a lot of money and invested it. And yet it didn't stop him. He was a tenacious and passionate man and he kept collecting. And Jason, if I can keep going with what motivated him, is he... Um, began to find something in Europe which he believed was evidence that humans had been there not for the sort of 30, 40,000 years that had been accepted, but perhaps 100,000 years or, in fact, millions of years. 
These were stone artifacts so rough that most people thought they were just broken rocks, which in fact they were, but he was convinced they were human tools. And it was that conviction that drove him to go to Tasmania and collect them there as well, because he believed the Tasmanian Aborigines were of the same level of human um, evolution. They were as primitive. And if he could make a collection there and compare it to his European stone tools, he could prove that Europe had this really deep antiquity. Right. So tell us a little bit about Tasmania, um, for those who, who don't know. You know, what, what is the state like? And, um, you know, what must have been a huge journey for someone from England to go to Tasmania in the early 20th century, no? It was. Um, it, it probably still is. <laughs> it's, it's the only state of Tasmania, uh, the only state of Australia that is not part of the continent of Australia. It's its own island. And so in many ways, Australians have always looked down to Tasmania. And I don't mean always condescendingly, although they probably do, but looked down literally and seen it as a very different place to the rest of Australia. It's, um, it's latitude 42 degrees, so it's really quite far south. It's much colder than perhaps people imagine or think of much of Australia as being. It's got mountains. Um, a lot of it uh, is wilderness and remains wilderness. It's also got a very distinct history that um, it was a place that was set up as a penal settlement uh, originally and has always been regarded as somewhere where the Aboriginal, uh, where the convicts were treated really um, poorly. Uh, in some ways, that's kind of been exaggerated to a certain point. And then on top of that, we have this um, very tragic story of colonization of the indigenous peoples where the settlement by the British um, after being a penal settlement or, or you know, about 20 years after it being settled was a very, very swift invasion uh, to set up um, pastoral lands for sheep grazing. And within less than a decade, uh, the population, um, I think, grew 10 times and uh, the Aboriginal people their lands were very quickly taken over and they fought back. Um, these were the lands that they needed to hunt their kangaroo. This was the place where they um, needed to gain fresh water. This is the land that, you know, was their sacred home. And um, when they fought back, uh, the colonial government um, declared martial law and uh, it was called a war at the time. And that uh, started in the 1820s. By 1876, the Tasmanian Aboriginal people were declared extinct um, within a kind of obsolete racial terms, scientific terms, that they were seen as a separate race and the very last full blood, which is a, a problematic term, of course, but she was... You know, she died, Truganini died in 1876 and became a very iconic historic figure. And so we, we look to Tasmania, the Australians, but also internationally. It's this very sad, terribly sad story. So when Westlake went there in 1908, 
He went thinking that he would be collecting the stone tools of a remnant extinct people. That's right. And what did he actually find? Well, he found a living indigenous uh, communities. Um, as I said before, he was a very tenacious character. So he went to collect stone tools. He didn't, um, he didn't just collect a few. He collected 13,000. And he did so by traveling uh, across the island. He, he crossed it seven times. It's not a small place. Um, this was at a time when most of the travel was done by boat, steamboat or, or by steam train. Uh, he also had a bicycle with him. He, uh, he did a lot of walking and he carried uh, these stone artifacts on his bike or, or on his back um, and visited 142 sites. But he didn't just want stone tools. He wanted to know about the people who made them. So he spoke to as many people who were willing to talk to him about the Aborigines. Many of these were white settlers or the grandchildren, the children of settlers. But he also heard that there were communities of people living who were called the half-castes, who were not understood to be Aborigines or natives or blacks, as they were then termed, but nonetheless might have some information about their culture. So he made a journey to the islands that sit between the mainland of Australia and Tasmania, which is in the Bass Strait, and he found a community of Aboriginal people who, while they weren't recognised then as Aborigines, they now are, and while he was told, oh, they won't know anything, they in fact gave him um, a lot of cultural information about uh, language. Um, they spoke to him in language. They told him how they hunted. They told him perhaps not everything. Uh, they're very private people, but they did tell him something about their their spiritual and sacred practices. And they were the, not the only community. There was another uh, community much further south, um, at the very southern end of Tasmania, who also spoke to him um, about their culture very openly. And what we can see is that it, it just wasn't lost, as it is not lost now. And yet, because of this enduring idea of extinction and that he believed he was talking to half-castes, he didn't really... Um, see that these were indigenous peoples and no one, no scholars since uh, until this book have seen his papers as the um, evidence of a, a con continuing culture. It's taken a, a, a political um, shift in the thinking of white academics, partly, mostly pushed by the Aboriginal community themselves to say, look, we're still here and we still have a voice, we have rights. And this is part of our continuing culture. And these papers are sit within that context of saying, you can see that we, we never lost that. Um, and so that's why I called it into the heart of Tasmania, because I think this, this, this voice from Indigenous people is the living, beating heart uh, and important to remember because of that ongoing story of extinction that got told over and over again. That's right. And and so what can we kind of learn from from the story of Ernest Westlake, you know, about 
not being able to kind of escape the past and, and how we define what it means to be Aboriginal or what it means to be Australian identity? What can we learn? I think what we can learn is that we, we need to listen to the voices in the past, not necessarily in the way that they were heard then. I think sometimes, um, not just as historians, but as readers of history, we need to allow our eyes from the present to, and our ears now to, to hear things in a way that, that can give us an insight, even if in the past they were blinded to it. And it means also then having to tune our eyes and ears to the people in the past like Ernest Westlake and ask the question, why didn't they see it or hear it? What was it that they were so reluctant to? And it, it actually teaches us about the history of the colonizers, of the scientific thinkers. It allows us to get a sense of what their beliefs were and how it shaped the way they saw the world. And I think that gives us a better understanding of both sides um, and how that conversation comes together. You know, this is one example, but you know, this example comes in museum spaces as well. Um, we understand when perhaps we go into a museum, we see um, indigenous artifacts which are collected all around the world, that they were often collected in the past to demonstrate primitivism or otherness or exoticism. But we don't need to, we can learn that that's how they were seen, but perhaps we can enter those spaces and see them in different ways as being um, art, as speaking about a relationship with land and then allowing that space to become something which Indigenous peoples are part of rather than just being outside of that uh, conversation between the whites and as collectors and as viewers. So I think, I, I hope that, that that might be um, how we might, you know, advance or, or progress, <laughs> difficult words perhaps, but, you know, uh, allow that uh, kind of space to happen because I worked so hard to to speak with Indigenous peoples, part of this book is, is written with them. Um, and I couldn't really have written it without their help. That's right. Maybe you can tell us very briefly, um, kind of in conclusion, you know, about getting to know the community. And, um, you know, we, we really, we read about Ernest Westlake, but we also get to read about you and your journey through the archives and meeting people, uh, the Everett's. Maybe you can tell us just briefly about that. Yeah, well, the book opens um, in Palawakani, which is the reconstructed Tasmanian Aboriginal language. And it opens with Jim Everett, who's the Tasmanian Aboriginal elder who I've now known for nearly 20 years. And he's standing there protesting against the building of a large road um, that will mean concrete pylons uh, digging into 41,000 years of his um, ancestors' history. And... I wanted to put that right at the beginning, I mean, because I think what we need to remember is that we are talking about this fairly eccentric, you know, Englishman, and we're talking about my journey of trying to follow him. But we have to put this in the context of a living community which, um, you know, has lots of issues facing it and is a large community with 
lots of different aspects to it. And, you know, this is one way to, to look at that history. Um, I feel very privileged to have been able to work, uh, as I said, with members of that community. Um, and, you know, they have been a very politically active um, group of people who have fought and are still fighting for the return of their ancestral remains, their cultural artifacts, and um, for their rights to land. And um, they're very busy, so like I said, I'm very privileged to have been able to learn from them. That's great. Well, thanks so much, Rebe, for joining us today. That's Rebe Taylor. She's the Coral Thomas Fellow at the State Library of New South Wales. Her new book is Into the Heart of Tasmania, A Search for Human Antiquity, published in 2017 by Melbourne University Press. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.